During the 45 years that the Buddha was teaching, he used a, um, a variety of forms to teach, depending on the situation and the mental disposition of his listeners. Sometimes he would use similes or analogies to make his listeners understand. At other times, he was exposing their facts of the true nature of mental and physical phenomena in order to make them understand. At other times, he asked, asked questions and trying in this way to make them understand. And sometimes his answer was simply to keep silent. Whatever the means were to teach his nuns and monks, lay followers or ascetics from other traditions, it was always aimed at making them understand the way leading to Nibbana, the way leading to the cessation of suffering. In the sutta called Dharukando Bama Sutta, the Buddha made something very simple to the subject of his talk. It was a lock that was flowing down the river Ganges. In English, this sutta is called the parable of the lock. With this simple example, the Buddha tried to explain to his disciples of how one can reach the ocean of Nibbana. This discourse was delivered at the time when the Buddha was staying in Kosambi together with a group of 500 monks. One day in the morning, they left the city walking in a line with the Buddha at its head. When they came to a group of big trees on the bank of the river Ganges, the Buddha pointed out to Ananda, his attendant, that he wanted to take rest there. So then Ananda folded the robe that he was carrying um, for the Buddha and spread it out on the grass under the trees. So then the Buddha sat down on the seat prepared for him and the monks also sat down. It is said 250 um, each on either side of the Buddha. So try to imagine how this must have looked like. Could be a group of large mango trees under which the Buddha and his monks were taking rest. Or maybe there were jackfruit trees. So sitting there in the shade of the tree, surrounded by his 500 monks, he could see the water of the river Ganges flowing by steadily and slowly. The monks were respectfully holding, holding their hands in Anjali, paying respect to the teacher. And nearby, there was a pasture with green and fresh grass. A cowherd named Nanda was looking after the cows that 
different owners had entrusted to him. So this is the scene where the Buddha and the monks took rest. So while the Buddha was sitting there facing the river Ganges, he saw a log that was um, carried down in the current of the river. Immediately he had an idea. He thought that it would be good and beneficial to give a discourse, taking this log as an example. And he also knew that it would be conducive for his monks um, to realize Nibbana. Therefore, he lifted his arm and pointed to the log in the river. He said, Bhikkhus, do you see that great log being carried down in the current of the river? I was just saying that the Buddha was taking rest in the shade of the trees. But as soon as he saw this log being carried down in the river, he started to give a discourse to his disciples. This shows the enormous compassion that the Buddha had, not only for his disciples, but for all living beings. In every situation and in every moment, he was only concerned with the welfare of others. He was only concerned of how he could benefit others. He could have just taken rest there, simply taking rest without being concerned about other beings' welfare. But out of his great compassion, or Maha Karuna, he took every opportunity to teach all beings, beings who are immersed in the ocean of samsara with all different kinds of suffering. What the Buddha was concerned with was to teach a way out of suffering, out of the sufferings of old age, disease and death. So without this great compassion, Maha Karuna, he surely would have just taken rest there without delivering a talk. We should not only respect and admire the Buddha for his great compassion that he showed in his life as the Buddha, but also for his great compassion that he already had during his life as a bodhisattva. As we know, a bodhisattva is a being who aspires, aspires to become a Buddha. That means a fully enlightened, enlightened being, and thereby practices various perfections and qualities which are needed to become a Buddha. Out of compassion for innumerable, innumerable beings who were living in misery and poverty, the Bodhisattva gave away many of his possessions many, many times. Or there were also many existences during which he offered 
his limbs or some of his organs to whoever was in need or to whoever came and asked for it. In one life as the King Sivi, he was approached by an old Brahmin who was blind and so asked for his eyes. And the Bodhisattva, as the King Sivi, without hesitating, he took out his eyes and gave it to the blind Brahmin. And it is also said that during many of his lifetimes as a Bodhisattva, he even gave away his life. We have the story of the, the Bodhisattva being a prince coming across a hungry and starving tigress uh, which couldn't feed her cubs. And so out of compassion for the tigress and her cubs, he offered his life. It is said to fulfill these perfections, these qualities needed to become a fully enlightened Buddha. He, uh, it took four incalculables and a hundred thousand worlds. And besides Karuna, there were other perfections that he had to fulfill. Myoshin has talked about these ten perfections in her previous talks. So when we respect the Buddha, it's not only for the Buddha in his last life as the fully enlightened Buddha, but we should also respect him um, for when he still was a Bodhisattva. So going back to the discourse, instead of just taking rest, he pointed out to the log in the water and started to deliver, to deliver a talk. So then the Buddha continued, Monks, if that log is not caught on the near bank, if that log is not caught on the far bank, if that log is not submerged under the water, if that log does not land on a small island, if that log is not taken away by human beings, if that log is not taken away by non-human beings, if that log does not sink into a whirlpool, if that log does not become rotten, then it will reach the ocean. Here the Buddha points out that if there is none of these eight faults, the log will inevitably reach the ocean. Therefore, if the log gets caught on the near bank, will it then reach the ocean? Of course not. Stranded on the near bank, it's sitting there. Or if the log is submerged under the water, will it reach the ocean? Again, the answer is no. Only when it is free from all of these eight faults is it possible for the log to be carried down in the current of the river and reach the ocean. And why is this so? 
because the current of the river Ganges, as well as all the currents of all the rivers, they incline or they slant towards the ocean. And then the Buddha continued to say, in the same way because if you have none of these eight faults, you will reach Nibbana. And why is this so? Because Samaditi, which means right understanding, inclines towards Nibbana, the cessation of suffering. When this was said, one of the young monks requested the Buddha to explain the simile, as he couldn't understand the meaning of these words. Among his disciples, there were monks with different levels of understanding, those with high and sharp intelligence could immediately grasp the meaning of the Buddha's words. Those with middle intelligence, they also could understand what the Buddha was pointing at. But those of weak intelligence were unable to understand what the Buddha was referring to. That's why, that's why one of the younger monks asked the Buddha for an explanation. So he asked, Venerable Sir, what do you mean by caught on the near bank? And the Buddha replied, the near bank refers to the six internal sense bases. So these six internal sense bases, what are they? They are the eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, and the mind. They are also called the six sense doors because they are the doors through which the objects enter the mind and then can be perceived by the mind. And the young monk continued to ask, Venerable Sir, what do you mean by caught on the far bank? And the Buddha answered, the far bank refers to the six external sense bases. And what are these six external sense bases? They are visible forms, sounds, smells, tastes, tangible objects, and mind objects. These six external sense bases, they are also referred to as the sense objects because they are the respective objects that can be perceived by the mind through the six internal sense bases or sense doors. And after that, the young monk continued to ask about the meaning of the other expressions. In short, to be submerged under the water means delight, clinging, lust. Landing on a small island is a designation 
for pride, conceit, haughtiness, getting caught by human beings means to mix with people in an improper way and to get caught by non-human beings means to live to live with the aspiration uh, to be reborn in the deva realm sinking into a whirlpool is a designation for the five courts of sensual pleasures and becoming rotten means that someone is pretending to be virtuous although one is not so today i'm going to talk about the first two ways that prevent the log from reaching the ocean they are being caught on the near and far bank in other words this means to get stuck on the internal and external sense bases. First of all, I want to say a few words about the mind. In Buddhist psychology, what we refer to as mind or consciousness is called citta. This citta, mind or consciousness, knows the object. It is a pure cognition of the object that comes in contact with the sense door. Let's take the example of seeing a flower, like the beautiful flowers that we have here. So the flower is the visible object, or to speak with the uh, sutta, it's the external sense base. Then the eye is the internal sense base or the sense door. So when there is a visible object and the eye, then there arises consciousness which sees the object, which sees the flower. So the eye, the physical organ of the eye, actually cannot see. It is the mind, the consciousness, the seeing consciousness that sees. And in the case of the sense door of the eye, we call this consciousness the eye consciousness. This eye consciousness arises depending on the eye, the visible object, and the contact between them. Only when a visible object, like the flower, contacts the eye, then eye consciousness arises. Without any contact, there wouldn't arise any eye consciousness. And so this eye consciousness knows the object. It just cognizes that there is an object, just this much. Now, in order to identify or to recognize the object, the consciousness needs the help of certain mental factors. These mental factors, they arise together with citta, 
or the consciousness. And these mental factors, they all have very specific tasks to help consciousness to identify or recognize the object. These mental factors, they assist citta by performing very special tasks in the total act of cognition. And these mental factors, they cannot arise without citta, nor can citta arise completely segregated from these mental factors. They are interdependent, but citta is regarded as the chief or the leader. The relationship between citta and the mental factors is like the relationship between a king and his retinue. Although one says the king is coming, the king never comes alone. He is always accompanied by some attendants or ministers, always uh, accompanied by uh, his retinue. Or last month, we had Chamiye Sayadaw teaching here. And when Chamiye Sayadaw was coming here to the meditation hall to give a Dhamma talk, he never came alone, but he always was accompanied by Uvamsarakita, the Canadian monk who was assisting him, and Edwin, who was taking care of Sayadaw in various ways. So, although we were sitting and waiting for Sayadaw coming and then hearing steps approaching, uh, I would think, ah, Sayadaw is coming. But Sayadaw wasn't coming alone, but he had these two persons accompanying him. So similarly, when a citta consciousness is arising, it never arises alone, but is always accompanied by a retinue of mental factors. Let's go back to the example of the flower. So the eye consciousness knows the object. It cognizes uh, that there is an object. And it is the mental factor of perception that identifies this visible object as a flower. It is this mental factor called perception or sanya in Pali that perceives the qualities of the object and then compares it to what has been previously perceived. And then it interprets the object by the way of its feature that have been apprehended. So in our case, the object consists of a stalk, of leaves, and some petals. And so therefore, it is identified or recognized as a flower. 
And if you have seen this kind of flower before, then there will also arise a name for this flower. For this flower, I don't know the English name in our Swiss-German language, we call it Fraesia. So, now seeing this flower here, um, if I think in English, then it's just a flower. It wouldn't have a more specific name. Now, another mental factor that is arising with each moment of consciousness is feeling Vedana in Pali. And this mental factor feeling is experiencing the object in its affective mode in which the object is experienced. And as we know, this can be either pleasant, unpleasant or neutral. Looking at the beautiful flower, for example, it is most likely that a pleasant feeling arises. And then, depending on this pleasant feeling, there can arise the desire to get this flower. One can um, want this flower. And so, generally speaking, attachment arises. And this is called loba in Pali. Now, if we have got hold of this flower and think, this is my flower, then if somebody comes and takes away this flower, then it's most likely that an unpleasant feeling arises. Get upset or irritated or even angry at the person who takes away this flower. And this is experienced as an unpleasant feeling. And so the um, response to it are unpleasant mental states, aversion, ill will, irritation, frustration, and the like. And these kind of mental states are all coming under the category of dosa. Now, attachment and aversion, or loba and dosa, do they bring you happiness or unhappiness? Of course, unhappiness, unsatisfactoriness. And why do you have this unhappiness or unsatisfactoriness? Because you are caught on the near bank as well as on the far bank. You are stuck <coughs> on the six internal sense bases, which are the eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body and the mind. Or you are stranded on the six sense doors. And you are also caught on the far bank, which means the external sense bases, the visible form, the sounds, the smells, the tastes, 
tangible objects and the mental objects or it means you're stranded, get caught in the sense objects and if you are caught on the near bank as well as on the far bank then you will never reach the ocean that means then you will not become enlightened as you have seen we have these six internal sense bases and the six external sense bases when a visible form contacts the eye then eye consciousness arises and in the same way when a sound comes in contact with the ear then ear consciousness arises when a smell comes in contact with the nose we say nose consciousness arises when a taste comes in contact with the tongue then the tongue consciousness arises and when a tangible object touches the body then body consciousness arises and when a mental object arises and comes in contact with the mind mind consciousness arises so in this way we also have six different kinds of consciousness the eye consciousness for example can only cognize visible forms um, it cannot hear sounds or smell a fragrance or ear consciousness can only hear sounds it's impossible for ear consciousness to see something or uh, to feel the touch of something so at each of the sense doors there arises the corresponding consciousness so this consciousness arises knows the object cognizes the object but then immediately passes away consciousness or citta is also an impermanent process it's not something everlasting or permanent and so the cognition of the object doesn't last for even a second not even for a millionth of a second after one moment of consciousness has arisen cognize the object it passes away only to be immediately followed by the next moment of consciousness and that again passes away very quickly so citta consciousness mind is just a series of momentary arisings and passings away of consciousness it happens very very fast and this process is so fast and so swift that we normally are not able to perceive it in this way we mostly think of consciousness as an unbroken stream and so then coming back to the example of the flower when we see the flower we take this act of seeing as a personal process and say 
I see a flower or it is me who sees the flower. Somehow we think that there is an I or an ego in or behind this consciousness of seeing. We somehow think that ultimately it is the I which sees, which hears, which smells, which tastes, which touches, or which thinks. And it is this idea of I or me that is taken for something solid, something indestructible. At the time of the Buddha, it was referred to as Atta. And this Atta was believed to be indestructible, to be permanent and everlasting, being contained in a person's or being's life from birth to death. But now, when we take this Atta, or this ego, this I, um, to be the consciousness or the mind, then we have to conclude that this I or Atta um, cannot actually be the consciousness or mind, because by definition, this I would have been must be something which is permanent, lasting, but knowing from our experience, consciousness, the mind, is not a lasting or permanent entity, but subject to impermanence, arising, passing away all the time. Once the Buddha explained it with the following illustration. A fire is named according to the material on account of which it burns. So a fire that burns on account of wood is called a wood fire. If we make a fire with straw, then it would be called a straw fire. And if there is fire or a flame that burns on account of gas, then we would call it a gas flame, a gas fire. The Venerable Buddha Gosa, which wrote many famous commentaries in the 5th century, uh, he explained this point as follows. A fire that burns on account of wood burns only when there is a supply of wood, but it dies down in that very place when the supply is no longer there. Even so, the consciousness that arises on account of the eye and visible form arises in that gate of sense organ, which means the eye, only when there is the condition of the eye, the visible form, light and attention, but it ceases when the condition is no more there. Let's assume that it is night and 
we are in a room where it is pitch dark. In our hands we hold a flower, which is the object. And let's assume we are not blind, we have functioning eyes, and we even have the attention to see the flower holding in our hand. But in this pitch-dark room, can we see the flower? Surely not. And why is this so? Because one of the conditions that needs to be there for um, eye consciousness to arise, one of these conditions is missing. And this is the light. As soon as we would turn on the light in that room, then immediately we would be able to see the flower. In one of his retreats, Jamie Sayado used the following example. Imagine there is one person who is sitting inside a room made completely of glass. He's sitting in a glass room. And another person is standing outside of this glass room and is talking to the person inside the room. Now, the person sitting inside the glass room is not deaf. He has ears which are functioning. He has also the attention to listen to what the person standing outside is saying. But still, he cannot hear the words. Why is this so? For ear consciousness to arise, there also need to be certain conditions present. There needs to be the ear, a functioning ear, the sound, the other person who is talking, and there needs to be the attention from the person to want to listen. So we all have these conditions. We even have light. But for ear consciousness, light is not necessary. Um, but in this case, because there is no contact between the sound and the ear, um, the man inside cannot hear. And in this case, um, for contact to happen, there must be the space, like unobstructed space, so that the sound can go and touch the ear. But because there is this separation of the glass wall, so the sound cannot um, come in contact with the ear of the person sitting inside. So in these examples, it is quite obvious that the eye, for example, cannot hear sounds, or that the ear, for example, cannot see visible forms. Before I said that consciousness, the mind, is in a constant flux, always changing, arising 
and disappearing one moment after the other. So at one given time there cannot only exist at one given time there can only exist one moment of consciousness. So when there is a moment of um, eye consciousness, then at the same time ear consciousness cannot arise. <coughs> so it's not possible to simultaneously hear and see at the same time. But because it happens so fast, it gives us the impression that it happens together at the same time. In our ordinary existing mode, we perceive it as seeing, hearing and even tasting at the same time. But in deep meditation, however, this false notion can be realized when the experience is breaking down into small parts, when it is breaking down into extremely tiny moments of happenings, of moments of consciousness arising and passing away one after the other. So, when we start to realize this impermanent nature, seeing the arising and disappearing um, of things, seeing that the disappearing of one thing is conditioning the next thing to arise, then we have to admit, we come to uh, the realization that there is no unchanging or solid substance in these processes at all. There is nothing that could be referred to as the I, the ego, or the Atta. So, neither consciousness nor the mental factors which are arising together with consciousness um, are everlasting or uh, unchanging entities. Now let's go back to the parable of the log. We are dealing with the six internal and six external sense bases, which were compared by the Buddha with the near and far bank of the river Ganges. At a different time, the Buddha used the simile of the six animals to show how the six sense bases the six sense doors are like animals, each drawn to their natural habitat. And it is only by way of sense restraint that one can prevent from falling back into uh, habitual reactions. Sense restraint means to be watchful at the six sense doors all the time in order to know what object is entering the mind. So too, because when a bhikkhu has not developed and cultivated mindfulness directed to the body, the eye pulls in the direction of 
pleasing forms and displeasing forms are repulsive. The ear pulls in the direction of pleasing sounds and displeasing sounds are repulsive. The nose pulls in the direction of pleasing others and displeasing others are repulsive. The tongue pulls in the direction of pleasing tastes and displeasing tastes are repulsive. The body pulls in the direction of pleasing tactile objects and displeasing tactile objects are repulsive. And the mind pulls in the direction of pleasing mental phenomena and displeasing mental phenomena are repulsive. In this way, O monks, there is non-restraint. And then the Buddha continued to say, when all of these six animals become, become worn out and fatigued, then all of them would stand close to the pillar or they would all sit, sit down there or lie down there. And he said, in the same way, when a bhikkhu has cultivated mindfulness directed towards the body, then the eye doesn't pull in the direction of pleasing forms, nor are displeasing forms repulsive. And in the same way, um, it is valid for the other uh, sense objects. So then the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body and the mind, they do not pull in the direction of their uh, respective pleasing objects and displeasing objects do not become uh, repulsive. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.